0: Hi everyone, this is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nuremberg. Today I'm talking to food worker advocate and American hero, Baltimore Velasquez of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. We'll talk about his more than 50-year career fighting for farm workers, his relationship with Cesar Chavez, and the future of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to Food Talk with me, Danny Nierenberg. Um, I'm really excited uh, about our guest today because it's not very often that I get to talk to someone who is a, a true American hero and somebody who has really um, worked their way up to be one of the most uh, powerful labor organizers, uh, in, in the country. Uh, Baldemar Velasquez is, is, is just that though, a, a hero for food workers all over the country and inspiring to people all over the world. Uh, he is the president and the founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Uh, Flock is part of the AFL-CIO or the Federation of Labor Unions in the United States. Um, Baldemar grew up as a migrant farm worker. Uh, in, in Texas with his family and they migrated to farms all over the Midwest. Um, he worked in the fields of Ohio until he graduated high school and became the first person in his family to graduate college. Um, he founded Flock to fight the injustices suffered by his family and other farm families. Um, Flock is the first union to negotiate pol- multi-party collective bargaining agreements, and Baltimore is the recipient of numerous awards, including a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Fellowship. Um, he was also elected to the AFL-CIO Executive Council. Baltimore, it's such an honor to have you with us today. C- do you want to add anything to your bio or, or, um, say anything else?
1: Uh, no, uh, and thank you, Danny. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, join the you know, great work that you all do. So it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans. Um, one of the things that I've been asking people to share is sort of their favorite food memory or their favorite um, recollection of, of a meal they've had or a meal they shared with someone. Do you want to give us a... Um, a story about growing up and, and a food memory you have from, from being with your family?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, actually, now that you ask that, what comes to mind immediately are the breakfast tacos. My mom used to bring to the fields. Uh, after waking up at 4.30, five in the morning to be in the fields by six at daybreak, uh, my mom would follow about seven o'clock with a bucket full of tacos wrapped in a towel. And, uh, we'd open those, um, um, uh, freshly made, uh, flour tortillas with, um, potatoes and beans, uh, or eggs and potatoes. Um, those are probably my, some of my fondest memories. Uh, we would be working for an hour, hour and a half. Mom would show up with a, um, bucket of tacos nice. and <laughs> my, my brothers and sisters, we'd, We'd uh, stop work for about 15 minutes and devour those things. It was probably uh, the best meal of the day.
0: That's amazing. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other families that you worked with had similar memories of, of wives and mothers bringing out th- those, uh, those breakfasts uh, for their families.
1: Oh, yes. Um, food in the fields uh, was probably one of the most comforting and um, uh, enjoyable times because you got a break from the stoop labor uh, the same thing would happen at lunchtime, mm-hmm. uh, where we would open up the meal that, that we'd take to the fields uh, find a shade tree to sit under and break out the food uh, just the break from the very difficult back breaking work in the field, whatever we were picking right. whether it's uh, potatoes or tomatoes or cucumbers or cherries or strawberries or apples or peaches, uh, you name it. Uh, those break times were probably some of the most refreshing, uplifting times of the day.
0: And so, I mean, I think for many of our listeners, they don't understand how arduous the labor, uh, in, in these fields is. Can you sort of, uh, describe the typical, you know, day or morning or afternoon of, of a farm worker?
1: Well, uh, I remember, uh, Getting up when it's still dark, uh, knowing that the, um, uh, the dawn is just breaking and uh, you're hustling, trying to get ready, get dressed, uh, you know, throw some cold water on your face, wash your hands, um, take anything you can put in your mouth on the way out the door, knowing that your mom would follow uh, later with breakfast. Uh, the idea is to get a head start in the field. Uh, it's cool in the morning before the sun comes up uh, and gets uh, overbearing. Um, because around uh, 9.30, 10 o'clock, the sun is already out, the heat is beginning to soar, and um, uh, you're already sweating uh, a lot, and depending what kind of job you're doing, if you're doing strawberries in, in early in the morning like that, there's dew and mosquitoes uh, uh, on the uh, leaves, and you're fighting the mosquitoes and the, the, getting your feet wet from the moisture of the, the leaves. Uh, and uh, you get a little bit muddy before it dries off when the sun comes up and the dew dissipates. Uh, same thing with uh, any other uh, row crop uh, that you're doing uh, early in the morning. Uh, by 10 o'clock, the sun beating down on your back feels like a flamethrower. Uh, and of course, you know, you take, uh, occasional water breaks in a jug that's wrapped in burlap to keep the water cool. And, um, you try to keep the jug in the shade, but it's almost impossible depending on where you're working, uh, where you're working with a tractor alongside, or whether you're, uh, working, uh on row crops, it's parked somewhere. You, you put the, the jug of water underneath the shade of the, the truck or the car that you have in the field. Uh, it's, a, it's a constant challenge to keep hydrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, you want to you know, keep your water supply nearby. Uh, not like the experience I had working in tobacco fields some eight years ago when I did a six-day work week for right. tobacco. Those fields, those rows are long. And by the time you go, if the the, the water uh, is in one end of the field, you got to go all the way down, all the way back. That could be an hour and a half, uh, two hours, uh, whether you're doing uh, cutting or or topping or suckering. Uh, By the time you get back, you're really, really dehydrated. Right,
0: Uh, right well
1: oh, it's, it's a challenge
0: absolutely can you talk about sort of the the bathroom situation for farm workers it's it's not pleasant and and I realize that but I really want people to understand sort of the 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 tribulations that they're facing in these fields every day it's not just a matter of staying hydrated there's really not a place for you to be able to to use the restroom
1: uh, that was always a challenge that when I was growing up there were no uh, uh, toilet facilities no portagons in the fields the nearest The nearest bathroom was the woods, the nearest woods, the nearest cornfield. Uh, And to go to find a bathroom uh, wasn't too difficult for us boys, but the girls had a a very, very difficult Mm -hmm. time. And you almost felt embarrassed and humiliated, you know, watching your mom trying to struggle to find a place to to go to the bathroom or your little sisters. And um, that was always... um, it was one of the uh, things that that led to a rising discontent over these conditions when I was growing up and that led to my commitment to want to do something about it when I got old enough. Uh, it's not only that, it's the, when we started campaigning uh, for fuel sanitation standards in Congress, it's a debate that lasted for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, are you serious? I mean, what other worker, whether it's construction or or uh, any kind of outside work that people do, don't have portajohns out there, um, but now we have and So there's a lot of nuances to that. If it's too far away, if the fuels uh, rolls are long, uh, or, when I was working in the tobacco field, we we had it on a on a on a trailer uh, pulled by a a pickup, and we towed that thing all over the field mm-hmm. to keep it somewhat close. The problem was that it gets over 90 degrees, 100 degrees with a high humidity. Man, you don't go in that port right. John, absolutely have to. And um, so it, it, just going to the bathroom is a challenge even today.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I mean that leads to not only sort of workers' personal health problems from not being able to go enough, but also you know when there aren't um, facilities for that you know that are easily accessible, that can lead to food safety problems as well. So it's it's not just a problem for the workers; it's a problem for the whole food system.
1: Yes, it is the sanitation, the hand washing uh, availability. Uh, All this is very problematic still today in the fields.
0: So so you mentioned, you know, that campaigning for field sanitation, that's one of the reasons that you became a, a labor leader, essentially. Can you talk about, you know, what it was like in the 1960s when you were, um, you know, working towards better uh, rights for farm workers and, and how that struggle began and, and some of the really interesting voices and, and um, companions you had in that journey?
1: Well, the, here's, here's, uh, when I started organizing in the late 60s, um, no union wanted to organize us because we were, everybody said, this, it, it's impossible to unionize migrant workers. Uh, they're here today, gone tomorrow, many of those crops are short term he said you can't build a, a union uh with a temporary uh short term jobs and uh you know you kind of like the cucumber harvests only last six weeks uh the tomato harvests may last eight weeks uh the potato harvests may last uh you know six weeks or seven weeks uh, the cherries strawberries all are very short-term crops and how can you build a union Well, we didn't have a a choice. We felt we had to do something, Mm -hmm. even if no one else wanted to unionize us, we we had to unionize ourselves. So we did so by the the close networks that we enjoyed as families. Um, When you're poor and ignored Mm -hmm. and um, sort of ostracized from uh, uh, being integrated in a local community, uh, you sort of build your own networks. uh, in, the, in the Mexican culture, in the Mexican American culture, uh, every, every we did things collectively, like weddings were all mm-hmm. collective events, so was, or quinceaneras, uh, other celebrations. So, anytime you help sponsor somebody else's uh, event, a wedding or a quinceanera, you become compadres, mm-hmm. uh, sort of distantly related, you know, like godparents, and. Um, so that builds a, a very important social network, and that's really what we use to organize the union. Yeah. Uh, when my mom got involved, uh, she had a whole ring of commodities of uh, friends. Uh, she was active in two parishes in rural Northwest Ohio, and those women did everything together. They uh, they were the the uh, the prayer group uh, of the two parishes. Uh, when somebody died, they prepared the meals for the family the grieving mm-hmm. families. first. Uh, when there was a wedding, they do, they cook the meals. Uh, so when we, when the union got started and the women got involved, man, they brought an army of, uh, very active, uh, families that solidified, uh, the, the, um, the core of people that any movement needs.
0: Absolutely. It's always women who are sort of, uh, you know, often behind the scenes, but often in front of the scenes too, who are making, um, these movements really run well. Um, can you, you talk about um, the work that you sort of shared with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta?
1: Well, uh, I, I learned of Cesar uh, shortly after I started organizing uh-huh. farm work. Actually, I learned uh, of him because of my interest in folk music and Luis Valdez and the Teatro Campesino. Nice they were writing all these, uh, strike songs, I said, man, I, I got to kn- learn more about this. And then I learned about Caesar. Uh, and I was, uh, starting my, my, uh, junior year in undergraduate, uh, school. And, um, I, um, uh, uh, we had a month, uh, in January where it was like, you could do a special, uh, paper on, on a subject for credit. And I wrote it on the farm worker movement. And, um, Part of that was interviewing Caesar. I went out to California to meet him personally in 1968, and uh, January 1968. And that's where we started a long, uh, t- uh, long-term uh, correspondence. And when this, we did the Campbell Soup strike in 1978, um, I went out, and uh, he invited me to come out and give a full report on the strike because it got on national news. Over 2,000 of us walked out of the tomato fields that were contracted to the Campbell Soup Company. We took on Campbell Soup and demanded a supply chain agreement, even though they weren't the employers. Uh, Caesar thought who was very novel. He invited me to come out to La Paz and present to the whole uh, community there, uh, his staff, about the strike and, and gave a full report, a lot of questions and did a lot of answers. And from that time, he became a, a very ardent supporter of the struggle here in Ohio and Michigan and other places that we're organizing. We did a national march for justice from Toledo to Camden, New Jersey, the world headquarters of Campbell Soup, in 1983. Uh, and Caesar came and marched with us the last two days. Uh, and from 1968 on, we were always uh, connecting with one another Many of our members were migrant workers from South Texas, Rio mm-hmm. Grande Valley in uh, Texas, where he had an office. So we went down and mobilized those flock members to join the United Farm Workers in South Texas. When And when they had their conventions down there that Cesar did annually, uh, we had uh, a couple hundred uh, flock members attend and participate in the UFW conventions uh, because... Um, We felt that the more they got involved with the union movement in Texas, uh, the stronger and better participants they'd be when they returned to Ohio for the harvest. So it worked very well, and we built that long-term relationship until the day he passed away. Uh, I was with him in Lansing, Michigan, was some six months before um, he died uh, at a at a march in Lansing, Michigan. It's the last time I saw him.
0: And I mean, you know. like you, uh, he and Dolores were so influential in, in making sure that you know farm workers were visible and, and you mentioned before how you know no one wanted to organize the farm workers. you know you felt poor and ignored, but a lot of this is really from inherent racism, you know because I, I feel like you know farm workers are essential to feeding everyone in this country. But they are, they are invisible because of racism. Do you want to speak a little bit uh, about what that's like? What, what it's like, you know, working to, to fight that?
1: Well, that's, that's one of the peculiar things about racism. Um, a lot of the, the, the discrimination uh, and a lot of the, the inequity uh, in life uh, may not be attributed directly to race. Uh, but rather a class of people. Mm-hmm. But it just so happens that that class of people are, are, are not white. <laughs> so, like, for instance, um, uh, the, the uh, National Labor Relations Act, the labor law that allows unions uh, to petition uh, for recognition and achieve collective bargaining agreements. In 1935, when they passed that act, Uh, Franklin Roosevelt needed the Southern Dixiecrats uh, support to to pass that act and uh, the Southern Dixiecrats at that time the agricultural workers were black and they couldn't see that black people have the same rights as white people Mm -hmm. so they excluded agricultural workers Um, so the discrimination was against agricultural workers it just so happened that they were all black and so we, uh, they excluded farm workers and, and every labor law reform since 1935 has continued to exclude agricultural workers. So we've, been, uh, the, we've inherited that racist legacy to this day. And um, uh, although it's a class of people that's, uh, uh, that uh, uh, is not uh, under the act, uh, but right now they went from black people to brown people. So and you put the race color on it, and that's exactly what it is. Many things in life are that way.
0: Absolutely. And I, I mean, I've heard you say that there is a systemic system of exploitation globally of farm workers. And I think, you know, the, the racism component is also inherent in that, you know, you, you've been doing this work for, for nearly 50 years now, or more than 50 years now. Are, are there improvements that you've seen that you want to describe um, or do you think things are getting worse?
1: Well, you may underscore some things that have gotten better in terms of um, uh, sporadically throughout the country. You find farmers that are doing things as uh, as best they can, and they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of growers that, that we covered under our agreements that are really doing their best to do the right thing. The problem is the the inherent inequity in the global supply chains keeps them on the margins mm-hmm. and keeps them uh, in, the, in a position to put pressure on everybody to um, to work in, with maybe unreasonable uh, pressure and standards. Uh, the problem is that the inequities in global supply chains, because I- anymore these days we live in a global economy we live in a very uh, competitive uh, global uh, state um, where there is no uh, commodity in this country that isn't under some serious pressure of, of our counterparts in other countries. And that's due to the designers of this global supply chains. They're, they're the manufacturers, mm-hmm. the global retailers, the Walmarts, uh, the Costco's, uh, the... Um, uh, multinational uh, processors like like Campbell's soup, like Heinz, uh, like all of the uh, food processors that, um, that, that jar and can uh, foods, uh, they source all over the world. Uh, and we are in competition like, for instance, the most recent uh, investigation we did on tobacco. Now, the tobacco workers we represent the issue is not just tobacco because the workers that harvest t- tobacco in, say, North Carolina also harvest 30 different crops, including cucumbers, tomatoes, uh, strawberries, uh, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, and, and even Christmas trees during the uh, the Christmas tree season. Uh, so they all have their counterpart pressures in other countries, but in the tobacco, which is the main crop that runs through agriculture in the Deep South. Our competition is coming from Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Malawi. Uh, when we investigated conditions of those uh, farm workers that are our counterparts, right? Uh, it, it's atrocious. Right. There were workers were getting paid less than a dollar a day. Absolutely. How can and they and they can bring that tobacco uh, from uh, Africa and blend it with uh, tobacco from the U.S. and other parts of the world and still get their product. And so that becomes a a very important issue for us to address as organizers that we have to go and help those workers in those other countries achieve some uh, measure of parity uh, based on the cost of living in their prospective countries so that there's some kind of balance globally and we can make uh, a way to feed, educate and clothe our families, not only here, but our counterparts in those other countries as well.
0: Absolutely. And I know through the IFL cio Solidarity Centers, you're able to do some of that work. But I, I, I think, you know, that's an important point for our listeners, that this is not just about farm workers in the United States. It's about farm workers everywhere. It's a global movement to improve conditions.
1: Yes. Uh, actually, we are uh, on our way to, uh, I've been part of an international uh, uh, committee to design a conference in South Africa in October where we're uh, handpicking uh, activists, organizing uh, trade union efforts around the globe to meet in South Africa to address this global supply chain inequity uh, issue. And we hope to come out of that with some kind of global plan that we can all join in together. And, uh, and do an initiative as I'm suggesting. Sure.
0: No, I'll look forward to hearing more about that in, in late October. So I, I, I want to go back. You, you know, you you mentioned some of the companies. Uh, you mentioned Campbell's. I know you've you've talked to Driscoll's. You've um, worked to campaign um, against poor conditions on on tobacco farms with Reynolds. Can you talk about? What it's essentially like to to talk to these companies. I mean, I think you know in in our heads, these are big global corporations, but at the end of the day, they're they're people like you and me, and like the farm workers in the fields. Are, are you able to build a rapport and 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 have some sort of um, dialogue with with these companies?
1: Absolutely. I, I, I always uh, try to teach activists uh, not to demonize the opposition um, uh, that they're human beings, uh, they are, uh, as much trapped in a system as we are. Uh, so here you got a, uh, a corporate executive at the top of, uh, some corporation. His job is not to, uh, be out there, uh, uh implementing or overseeing standards, uh, with their suppliers around the globe. Uh, uh, the pro—that's one of the problems: the disconnect of people mm-hmm. at the top and the people on the bottom. And uh, a lot of times they don't pay attention to some unless somebody calls their attention to it. I'm finding as the more I get to the top, to the uh, as I talk to the top officials of these corporations, that they di- really didn't have a clue. And you start to uh, educate them, and their their learning curve though is uh, sometimes takes a while. Uh, because they normally throw at you solutions that are failed solutions of the past, but it's their first experience at it. Uh, The best example I can give you is Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. There were some good programs that came out of that, like Head Start, the Food Stamp program, and so on. But there's many other programs that came out of that that have become dinosaurs of uh, institutionalized exploitation. Mm. Uh, For instance, the uh, the farm workers, uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars poured into these uh, assistance programs for migrant workers, uh, training and retraining programs to get them out of that, get him out of that work. For but every worker you get out of there, another poor guy comes in and takes her place, and the system continues to exploit people. So there's nobody challenging the inequities in the production systems of these uh, global corporations, and this is what we do. Uh, those inequities have to be addressed and the people that run those institutions many of them are good people right they they just uh inherited their role in a corporation to do things the way they've always been done and we say you got to break out of that buddy and uh their first response well that's beyond my pay grade they're not authorized to make those kinds (laughs) of changes so we have to work our way up and say well this is what needs to be done and Sometimes we got to do stuff to get their attention in a more serious way because the first thing they do is start throwing money all around uh, to duplicate some of these failed uh, efforts of the past.
0: And and so how do you get their attention, as you said, in a more serious way? What are some of those tactics?
1: Well, boycotts always work because then we go after and compete uh, for the consumer mind. And, of course, um, uh, that's a very important part of any... Uh, of any uh, product that's sold, and, uh, and that's the marketing uh, side of it. And uh, we challenge uh, uh, the consumer, them for the consumer mind uh, around that, and um, we, just by just by telling them what's going on, telling them the truth, and uh, and boycotts. Uh, sometimes we end up uh, uh, boycotting products. Right now, we're boycotting the views uh, uh, e-cigarette product of Reynolds, the cigarette product. Mm. of marketing it to young people, so uh, we're going after them on that, and um, hopefully uh, uh, get to the point where they decide, well, we've got to do something, get these people to make this go away, so, and that means they're going to have to seriously address Some of these uh, uh, supply chain inequities.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I I realize what you said before, and it's a lesson I've tried to learn as well. We we can't demonize these companies and these individuals, but we can fight and we can fight for for better conditions, not just, you know, as people like you who are leading farm workers, but as consumers. So, you know, I, I think one thing that would be really valuable for our listeners is what can consumers do? To, to support the work that you're doing better?
1: Well, uh, if you join us in this uh, boycott, and we're targeting uh, the convenience stores that sell the majority uh, 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 percentage of tobacco products uh, at the Circle K, uh, uh, 7-Eleven, uh, mm-hmm. Kangaroo, and Wawa in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Also, that e-cigarette product, and we're telling people uh, tell, the, uh, tell the corporate heads of those companies, you're not going to buy anything in their stores until they remove the abuse e-cigarette product. And uh, we're, we've got ongoing, uh, here in Toledo, we got a, a protest for an hour once a month in front of a, a 7-Eleven store near the University, uh, university of Toledo. And um, we've been out there four months in a row now and we keep coming back we did this with the Mount olive pickle boycott that mm-hmm. we ended up in a big breakthrough agreement in north carolina uh in 19 um in 2004 in 2005 and um uh we think we can duplicate that with this boycott and get the circle caves and the uh 7-elevens to weigh in with reynolds said that you got to do something to fix this
0: um, and they can, folks can find out more information on the flock website about that, that boycott, and we can also link to it on, on food tank. Um, sure. uh, you know, I, 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 realize the power that consumers have, especially around, you know, food products, uh, that farm workers are, are harvesting from fields and, and, and planting and doing all, the, you know, the other things that, f- that farmers and farm workers do. But can you talk about, you know, you said before that things are sporadically happening um, in terms of, you know, more consciousness among corporations, but that it's not enough. And that, you know, while advocacy is great, you, we actually need more laws and regulations and legislation that help protect farm workers. Uh, can you talk about why political leaders and, and our, you know, our, our officials, our elected officials aren't more, uh, Uh, cognizant of of why it's important to protect farm workers
1: farm workers don't have political leverage uh, because we migrate because we're not uh, permanent in one location and therefore we're not part of the electoral system so we have very little leverage other than the moral outrage that uh, can be uh, uh, provoked uh, through the stories and the the tragedies that we have to suffer so uh, unless you're in California, where you have a large Latino population that can influence these issues more than other states, uh, like here in Ohio, that the, probably the Latino population is not more than 4%. Um, so that becomes like a, a very difficult uh, issue. But the one thing that uh, people who are active politically can do uh, is push for freedom of association, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the uh, guiding principles in the UN's uh, ILO's um, uh, uh, concept of freedom of association. It's a right to unionize, a right to form unions and bargain collectively, because if we had that right, we could advocate for ourselves. We would need someone out there uh, begging Mm -hmm. for someone to give us permission to do something that which is something that we could achieve on our own. So uh, we tell people uh, what what can you do to help farm workers uh, achieve uh, freedom of association and guarantee that right without fear of retaliation. Which is Uh, a
0: basic human right for everyone. I mean, I, I think that we need to make that clear that the freedom of association and to unionize and to, you know, Uh, Have collective action are are things that every human being should be able to
1: do. I think every human being does do it Uh, They don't call them unions (laughs) They they call them trade associations. They call them churches, you know, they call it uh, the Farm Bureau. They call it the Mm -hmm. uh, Kiwanis Club uh, Chamber of Commerce Uh, Everybody pays uh, to be part of something uh, for their collective good uh, and so yeah, everybody's got unions except us farm workers.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a travesty. And, and I mean, I think you brought up, you know, this point that again, that, that farm workers are invisible, that you migrate. I mean, this sort of leads to the obvious question about the immigration debate that's going on in, in the United States. Can you speak a little to that and, you know, sort of the current political situation and how that affects your work?
1: Well, um, Yes, um, there has to be, let's say that whatever is proposed, here, here's some fundamental things that need to be addressed and looked at. Number one, migrant workers migrating for jobs is part of the labor market. And they need to treat the labor market the way they propose dealing with any other commodity in the markets. Uh, they call it free trade, uh, And uh, free enterprise, free this, free that, except free labor. Mm. Uh, The right, the the freedom to travel with rights, with human rights, with labor rights. Uh, They need to make possible uh, what they make possible with commodities, goods, and money. Uh, The ability to cross borders by countries that have trade agreements and allow the market to saturate itself. You know, the whole issue of supply and demand. Uh, They need to treat the labor market the very same way. Uh, If you let the market saturate itself and give workers the ability, the right, to negotiate uh, their own uh, uh, work uh, and living standards with their employers, uh, they will take care of themselves. But as long as workers don't have the freedom of association, as long as farm workers are captive workers, like these proposed guest worker programs that mm-hmm. don't give workers those labor rights, it's going to be more difficult to get justice and, and uh, some kind of equity in these uh, global supply chains because the corporation know, knows how to use this. And so um, uh, that's what needs to happen. So in making a long story short, that uh, if, we, if we had that, if we had the ability to travel freely, I mean, I, I don't mean open borders, I mean... Uh, issue a, a visa mm-hmm. that uh, where workers are vetted through, you know, the criminal databases and so on. Sure. And the freedom to travel and, uh, and work, uh, letting markets saturate themselves. Uh, and the, the migrancy issue would stabilize where you have a workforce that's negotiated their, their, their rights under a job. We represent 10,000 guest workers in North Carolina, I think a farm or two in in Virginia, Tennessee, Um, and we have a seniority clause in that. They're the only guest workers in the U.S. who have the ability to negotiate their return the following year uh, based on their seniority. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these are the kind of rights workers have to have. Uh, And uh, if we have that, uh, we would have a uh, a some kind of uh, balance on the issue of immigration from the south, which is the one that's particularly focused in uh, these political debates. Uh, and then building a wall is not going to solve anything. No. It's, it's it's like a like a giant bandaid on a self-inflicted wound because uh, the United States is. Um, uh, enormously responsible for the displacement of many Mexicans because of our trade agreement with Mexico. Uh, NAFTA uh, devastated the Mexican countryside because we can't comp- uh, uh, far- Mexican farmers cannot compete with American farmers when it comes to the markets on uh, on uh, uh, the commodities that we uh, dumped into Mexico, particularly corn, in uh, displacing millions of Mexican farmers in the countryside and you can't expect them to just sit there and rot and die uh, they need to they need to travel they need to move if you take away their livelihood they're going to go somewhere to, f- to feed their families and there's no walls going to uh, restrain uh, that desire of any human being.
0: Absolutely. Again, I mean, these are basic human rights. And, and whether you're a farm worker or the head of a corporation or consumer, you should be afforded them. I, I, I want to talk about, uh, I know your time is limited, so I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what are the biggest opportunities for for the Farm Labor Organizing Committee? I know you're expanding in places like Florida with orange pickers. Can you talk about sort of what that's like, what, you know, the the... the 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 new opportunities In 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 organizing farm workers
1: There's no end to uh, The organizing that needs to be done Among uh, agricultural workers Uh, I was just in um, Syracuse, New York last weekend uh, Talking to dairy workers Uh, And they're dairy workers Who supply milk To some of the biggest names Uh On the market out there Shobani, uh, yogurt uh, And And when the When you look at the workers that work there in the apple industry uh, along the east coast, um, there's tobacco outside of the deep south uh there's citrus um, in a lot of uh, fruits in in Florida, strawberries. Driscoll has uh, operations in Florida as well mm-hmm. uh, there there is no end to the organizing that needs to be done, and so there needs to be. You know, 10 more flocks out there, 10 more United Farm Worker uh, unions uh, organizing across the country. The the need is so big and the harvesters are few. Uh,
0: absolutely. And I, I know, you know, sort of looking forward for flock itself. I know that your vice president is, is young, Justin Flores. W- what's it like cultivating that next generation who can lead this movement?
1: Yes, that that is probably uh One of the biggest uh, issues that uh, movements like Flock uh, have to uh, face is a challenge Uh, because this work is probably the most difficult, uh, the most challenging. Nobody's handing you a blank check to do it, Um, and you know, it's uh, long hours, um, you're underpaid. So you can't do it because uh, it's a career uh, and you've got money and security and so on. You do it because uh, of the social injustice. And every bit as much as the early civil rights fighters, uh, who didn't do it for money, who didn't do it for position, they did it because they were incensed with the uh, exploitation, uh, the demeaning of a human being. you have to have that in your heart. You have to have a great passion for the people and not for material things. And finding those kind of people are few and rare. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, movements like ours, the United Farm Workers couldn't have uh, uh, gotten where they are. Uh, you, you had salaried people from the beginning. Uh, I remember Caesar's policy of uh, almost $5 a week Uh, was the volunteers pay Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, and all of us uh, I mean we went the first ten years of flock without any kind of remuneration we had to get side jobs in order to continue to do the organizing work and so those are uh, those are the kind of people these these uh, movements really need so we're always looking for those kind of people and um, and Lo and behold, sooner or later, a guy like Justin Flores comes around and uh, others that we have uh, currently in the staff um, that end up saying, we'll take up this banner of struggle.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing. And I mean, I feel like you're such a mentor to people like me. And so I I think you're definitely a mentor to to people who are working for the rights of farm workers everywhere. Um, Baltimore, you you continue to be my hero. I want to thank you for your time today. Um, folks can follow you on Twitter at Baltimore, uh, flock, uh, they can also check out the food tank website for more information and videos, uh, from our food tank summits where, where Baltimore has spoken and, um, Baltimore, I forgot when, when I was introducing you that you are such a great singer. People can still buy your CDs, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can, you can, uh, uh, you can order them online. Just uh, just communicate with info at flock dot com and and make a request, and someone will get back to them and and uh, make the order and. Make it happen.
0: Awesome. We'll include that link and the other links that we mentioned uh, on the Food Tank website as well. Thank you so much, Baltimore. I'll, I'll talk to you very soon. All
1: right, Danny. Thank you. You're so
0: kind. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at FoodTank.com. Email me at Danielle at FoodTank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk.